The scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. It can be found on page 886 in the Black Bibles. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Laura and Jamie, so much. Good morning to you. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Clay Holland. I'm the associate pastor here, Christ the King. It's great to be with you. Uh, it's great to be in the Gospel of John. It's great to consider together what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll dive into this passage. Let's pray. Father God, it is an amazing thing to consider what it means to be a follower of your Son, Jesus Christ. Some of us who are here this morning may be considering this today for the very first time. Some of us believe that we know exactly what it means, but we all need to hear again from you. We need your help to help us to see and to understand and to apply your word to our lives, and we ask that you would help us to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. There are very few things like on TV that will just kind of suck me in so that I just watch them and kind of get stuck there. For some reason, uh, movies about World War II are one of those. If, if, if it's around Memorial Day and there's like a uh, Band of Brothers, you know, series going on, I've been known to sit in front of the TV for more hours than I need to to watch that. Or if I'm, you know, scrolling around and I see Saving Private Ryan come on, for some reason I'll just stop and I'll, and I'll watch that. I've never really consider like what it is that attracts me to those things. So I actually stopped and I considered, why do I watch this? And I think it's just because of the sacrificial commitment of, of that generation of, of, of Americans that I find to be very different from myself and my own generation and, you know, other generations as well. The, the, the scene at the 
very, very, very beginning of Save It Private Ryan when they're in the transports. You know, they're going from the big ships, they're in the transport ships, they're about to storm the beaches of Normandy. Uh, it's a really wonderful scene of cinema because you're just looking at the faces of all these people. Everyone's quiet and they're all scared. Undoubtedly, they are all terrified. But you also see something else in their eyes. And I think the thing that you see in their eyes is a question. And that question is, will I have the courage to do what I need to do? Will I have the courage to do my duty when the doors of these boats open? Will I have the courage to charge into that machine gun fire and do what I need to do? The question they're not asking is, do I want to do this? There's an obvious answer to that question, of course, but that, that's not what they're asking. They're asking, will I be able to do it? Will I be able to do it? I think of myself, my own generation, really uh, pretty much every generation that, that followed that one, that is not necessarily the central question of our lives. The central question of our lives has changed to, do I want to do this? Do I want to do this? And that, I think, is why I like to watch those movies. They're inspiring to me. Now, I don't bring this up because I'm a curmudgeon. I am a curmudgeon, but that's not why I bring it up. Not really, I'm only a little bit. I'm not trying to make a point, you know, a generational point or anything like that. The reason though I bring it up is this. I think now, more, it's very difficult right now for us to truly understand and consider what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What John the Apostle calls in this passage a disciple. Because to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus in the biblical sense is to lay aside all of your wants, all of your desires, give up your entire life for the purpose of following Jesus, the ultimate purpose of your life. And in the narrative before us about the very first followers of Jesus, the first disciples of Jesus, we three, see three kinds of submission that they are challenged to process through. And those three things are things that we're also challenged to process through. The first is that a disciple submits to the call of Jesus. The second is that a disciple submits to the authority of Jesus. And the third is that a disciple submits to the mission of Jesus. The call of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. So first, a disciple submits to the call of Jesus. There is an anonymous hymn that was written in 1878, and the first stanza goes like this. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. I think about that hymn when I read these words, this narrative at the end of John chapter one, because these people that were called as Jesus' first disciples, they were seeking something. They were looking for something. They're all a, 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 a buzz, you know, about, about Jesus. The, 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 they believe or they, they think that they have found the Messiah, which they have, they just interpret it differently. They encouraged each other to come and check him out, you know? Um, and in the end, what they're gonna find out is that Jesus was seeking them first and that to be called by Jesus to follow him is a wonderfully daunting thing. So we can trace this out in our text through uh, the lenses of curiosity, exploration, and challenge. So the first is curiosity. 
The first time that the word follow is used in this passage is in verse 37, where the two disciples were curious about John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they're like, that's interesting. I'm going to go check that out. And so they followed Jesus. But that really is in a literal sense. They followed him in a general sense. In contemporary terms, they were just hanging around Jesus, just waiting to see what was going to happen. They were kind of hanging back. They were just waiting to see what was going to happen next. And I actually believe that a lot of people who believe or would say that they are Christians, or would say they're followers of Jesus, they get stuck at this place. Stuck at the place of sort of hanging around Jesus to see what is going to happen. Ask yourself that question. How much of an impact outside of Sunday morning does Jesus have on your life? How much of an impact? Does he impact the decisions that you make on Monday when you go to work? Does he impact the, how you think about the way that you spend your money? Does he impact what you choose to consume, both with respect to food and substances, but also to our entertainment? Does he impact what it is that you do with your body? Or... Do you kind of hang around Jesus? Does he function more to you as an accessory that you can put on or you can take off uh, as it suits you? If the deal is on the line and it's worth multi-millions of dollars, it's possible that you don't want Jesus hanging around right there at that time. And so you just take him off. You put him over in the side. You put him in the cupboard. If that's the case, you may just be hanging around Jesus. If being in a particular social group in your school is ultimate for you and is more important for you than actually following the law, then maybe you are hanging around Jesus, putting, trying to put him, on, put him on and take him off as it suits your purposes. And listen, curiosity is okay. It's okay for a while. It's, it's where so many of us began our own journeys of following Jesus. But the point here is that Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just let these two future disciples just wander out, walk around after him. He has a plan. And he begins that plan by asking a question. And this is where we get to the next step, which is exploration. The question that Jesus asked these two future disciples is this. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? That's a loaded question. They did not want to answer it. If you read the text, Jesus asked them, what you, are you seeking? And they're like, hey, that's too much too soon, Jesus. So they answer, where are you staying? I'll answer your question with a question of my own, you know? And Jesus then says, come and see. But, but what are you seeking? It's a question that he calls them to think about and to articulate what it is ultimately that they believe Jesus is going to do for them. It's a question that he asks us as well. What is it deep down that you hope that being around Jesus can do for you? Now, the, the disciples think that they know the answer to that question. They think that they know what being around Jesus is going to do for them. They articulate it in verse 41. 
and in verse 49. In verse 41, they go and tell their friends, hey, we have found the Messiah. In verse 49, in conversing with Nathanael and, and Jesus telling Nathanael some things that he knew about him, Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Now that seems to be a very important confession. But if you dig a little bit deeper, And you think, what is it that they mean by these words? At this moment in their lives with Jesus, before the cross, before anything else, what do they mean when they say that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's a rabbi, a teacher, that he's the king of Israel, and even that he is the son of God? What they believe that they are confessing is that Jesus was an earthly king, a military leader, one who was going to come and was going to gather an army and was going to restore the rule of Israel back to the Jews and was going to militarily defeat and kick out the Romans who were oppressing them and governing them. They thought that they had found the leader that was going to restore the rule of Israel to the Jews and they were going to be a part of it. And so being around Jesus and being close to him was going to let them be a part of this. Now Jesus doesn't argue with them, interestingly. He doesn't say, I don't think you know what you mean when you say these words. He basically just says, follow me and you're going to find out what this is all about. But it really is a good question for us to ask, what are, you, what are you seeking? I've asked myself this question a lot with respect to my own parenting. I didn't, and and I've, I have failed in this so many times. So, you know, we're all in this thing together, honestly. But I've lived here a long time and I really, I, I really think if you boil down like, so what's the general goal what is the general hope and dream for our children you know in this area of Houston what we want for our children generally speaking is that they would be happy that they would be successful um, that they would have a, 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 a comfortable life that was devoid of like massive, massive difficulties. That's really what we want for our children and so we can begin to think that if we can just get our kids to hang out with Jesus that that can happen. That, that, that if we can get our children to hang out with Jesus, we can keep them from going off the rails and they can have these goals that we have set for them of being happy and being comfortable and being successful. We want them to hang out with Jesus, but not so much that they become weird, right? That would be a disciple. That would be our kids actually being a real follower of Jesus and that's weird, right? Because if they become a disciple, if they really buy into this thing about following Jesus, they may come home from college one day and say, I'm thinking about going to seminary and being a pastor. And you're like, mm, too much. Or maybe being a missionary. I want to go to another place. I want to go cross-culturally and I want to tell people about Jesus. Or they may just go to school and just start talking about Jesus all the time you know, to to people. See, we have goals and that we think that if we could just hang around Jesus or our kids can just hang around Jesus, that they'll meet those goals. But Jesus is always pushing back. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Follow me. Are we going to follow that call of Jesus? First question about being a disciple. Second, to be a disciple means that we submit to the authority of Jesus. 
Now, just like the call, Jesus is the one who sets the agenda for those who follow him. We don't set the agenda for Jesus. He sets the agenda for us. That's what it means to be a disciple. He's not going to be manipulated or made into something that he is not. He demonstrates his absolute authority over his disciples. And he does it in this passage in two ways. First, through knowing, and second, through naming. Jesus demonstrates his authority through knowing. This is the whole thing uh, about Jesus' interaction with Nathanael in verses 47 through 51 because it involves Jesus taking a person who thinks that he knows things and showing him that he really doesn't know and that only Jesus truly knows. What, what Nathanael thinks that he knows is that Jesus can't be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth. Nazareth can anything good come from Nazareth? Surely that's, surely the Messiah is not from Nazareth because what does Nathaniel know? Nathaniel knows that Nazareth is a podunk town. The education system, the school system there is not very good. You know, that a, a, a great leader can't come from that place. And so Jesus sees him and, bef- and says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel's kind of like, hang on a second. You don't know me. How do you know, how do you know anything about me? And Jesus says, oh, I know you. He says, I know you. I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree. I saw you before Philip came up and talked to you. I know you, Nathaniel. I've always known you. Jesus demonstrates his authority in knowing, but also in naming. In the Bible, to give someone a name, something or someone a name, means that you have authority. That's authority. You name your dog. You have authority over your dog. We name, parents name their children. When God created Adam in Genesis, we studied this in our last sermon series, God created the man and gave him the authority to name other creatures. Jesus gives names to his followers. This He does it here in a literal fashion. In verse 42, Simon comes to him and says, Hello, Simon, you're now Cephas, which means Peter, the rock. You're now Cephas. I'm giving you a new name. I'm not asking you if I can give you a new name. I'm not saying, you know, you kind of look like a Cephas to me, you know. He's saying, you are now Cephas. And this name change is symbolic of what Peter will ultimately become rock that witnesses the truth of the resurrected Jesus, but here it simply connotes the authority that Jesus has over his disciples to give them and tell them who they are ultimately at the core of their being. As I'm sure you're absolutely aware, this question and this word identity, it just goes, it's like all over the place. And this question of identity is one of the central questions of our time. And what's really the question at the root of our kind of identity as human beings right now is the question of authority. Who has the authority to determine who I am? Who has the authority to tell me who I am? Our cultural answer right now is very easy. I do. Only me. I have the authority to name myself, to give myself my own identity. I am supreme authority over my own life. Therefore, no one has the right to speak into it or challenge it. 
There's a different biblical answer. The biblical answer is that God has that authority. He who knit you together in your mother's womb has authority over you to tell you who you ultimately are. Now, there are all kinds of ways to think about that and to apply that in the world, but I actually want this to be a deep encouragement to you because I do think this is a place where we struggle. This is a place particularly where our children struggle and are going to struggle because the world is constantly bombarding them with lies about who they ultimately are. I read an article the other day, and I don't remember where it was, but it, it, it was it, somebody had done this survey and taken like all of the the most popular uh, dating apps that are in existence right now, and had done a survey of uh, of, of men and women who were on those apps. And one of the things that it said was this, which I found, I found very fascinating. It said that 65% of women who are on dating apps automatically screen out every man who is under six feet tall. Uh, so th- th- here's what's interesting about that. The average height of an adult American man is five feet, nine inches tall. So you have 65% of women, you know, competing over well under, you know, kind of 50% of men. Now, I did not get to the, what, what men screen for, and I'm sure it is exactly the same, you know, or even worse. So I think this is like, this is happening kind of on both ends, where men and women in our culture are screening other people based on purely physical characteristics before they even get to know them, before they even decide if that person is worth knowing, is symbolic and symptomatic of uh, this constant drumbeat of something's wrong with you. If you're under six feet tall, something is wrong with you. If you're not blonde, something is wrong with you. If you're not athletic, something is wrong with you. If you're not making straight A's, something is wrong with you. You are not measuring up. If you're not traveling, you know, 150 days out of the year to exotic places, your life is boring. If you're not, you you know, you're wearing the wrong clothes. They may have been the right clothes last week, but they're the wrong clothes this week. You're wearing the wrong, something's wrong with you and you don't know. You're inadequate. That's the message of this world that is constantly bombarding us and particularly our children and those who are younger than we are. These messages are false. This is, this is, these are lies. As my, my mother-in-law would say, these are lies from the pit of hell and they smell like smoke. It's false. If you are a follower of Jesus and you come to him by faith, he puts his name on you. God says, fear not. I have called you by name. You are mine. The very first term we read in Acts for those who follow Jesus were Christians. Christians, little Christs. Because you're united to Christ and you bear his name. That is who you are. Now, and into eternity. Only God has that authority to give you that level of identity. And it's part of the privilege of being a follower of Jesus, a disciple. And finally, to be a disciple means to submit to the mission of Jesus. 
Jesus' call and authority are not simply ends in themselves. To hear the call of Jesus, to come to him, to submit to his authority is really the beginning of a lifelong journey of mission. Um, the now late pastor and, uh, and writer, Eugene Peterson, calls it a long obedience in the same direction. That's what it means to give yourself to the mission of Jesus. We see this in the text with both Peter in verse 42 and Philip in verse 43. When Jesus gives Peter a new name, he is, yes, demonstrating his authority over Peter to do that, but he is also telling Peter who he is and what the mission of his life is going to be. Peter, the rock, the witness of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Peter wasn't perfect in this, which should also be encouraging to you. I mean, he waxes and wanes in his rockness for sure. Uh, as we read in the rest of the Bible. But Jesus is not only giving him a new name, he's giving him a new purpose and a new mission in his life. For Philip in verse 43, Jesus simply says, follow me. It's his call, but also his mission. Philip thinks he's following Jesus into Jerusalem to defeat the Romans. He's actually following Jesus into Jerusalem for him to run away, but for Jesus to die on the cross. And for Jesus to say, that's where I'm going. I'm calling you to take up your cross and follow me in a life of sacrifice for my kingdom. So he calls us to follow him in that life of sacrifice. He calls us to follow him as his witnesses. He calls us to follow him as being his presence, the aroma of Jesus in the world. So whether tomorrow we go to our workplaces or the halls of our schools or um, to our social clubs or gatherings or to any of our meetings or wherever it is that we are, we, we are the aroma of Christ because we belong to him, we follow him, and he is united to us by faith. What he does not call us to do is to hang around with him for our own benefit or to try to cultivate our own sense of identity that will give us the things that we want in this world. If you happened yesterday to watch uh, college game day on ESPN before college football games started, you would have seen the story of Alex Sunderland. Alex Sunderland is a Texas A&M student who found himself in the center of all of the action last year, last October, when Texas A&M played Alabama at home at Cal Field and won that game. Alex Sunderland was not planning on going to the game, but he was a member of uh, the Hispanic Student Association at Texas A&M, and some of his friends in that association had an extra ticket, and they gave it to him, so he went along with them, and he went to their tailgate, having fun with his friends. After that, they were going to the stadium, and as he's walking to the stadium, he looks down, and he sees something on the sidewalk. He picks it up, and it's a card that says VIP access on it. And he looks at it, and he looks at his own ticket way up in the nosebleeds, and he gets an idea, and he actually thinks, I'm gonna see how far I can get with this thing. And so, he goes to the VIP entrance to Kyle Field and he sort of flashes it, VIP, you know, and the, the first, you know, kind of gatekeeper's like, yeah, come on in. And so waves him in. And so he goes inside, he's walking now in kind of the tunnels in the bowels of the stadium and he meets somebody else who looks a little bit more authoritative, you know, and says, may I help you? And he thinks at that moment, I might have gone as far as I can go I'm going to need to craft for myself a new identity here. And speaking fluent Spanish, 
He decides that the identity that he is going to craft for himself is a recruit as a kicker from Mexico who only actually knows two words of English, recruit, kicker. Everything else he says in Spanish. And so the, the, the scary looking person says, may I help you? And he begins speaking in Spanish and he throws in two words, kicker, recruit. And the guy says, oh, come on in. So he, com- so he comes in and he goes to the tailgate with all of the recruits. Now this is a big day for, I mean, this would be a big recruiting event for Texas A&M. All the five stars that they got last year in their number one recruiting class were there right? And he's hanging out with them, having a great time. And then he goes to the seats that he was given. And he decides, you know, after the game is over, he goes down and rushes the field with everybody else. Uh, and, and they're all celebrating and they're all, you know, all having fun. And he's like, well, I'm going to see if I can get past this. And so he goes to the locker room. He holds on to the pad of one of the players, and kind of being shielded by this gigantic human being, he walks in, kind of flashes his, his badge, goes into the locker room. He's there. You can see pictures of him partying. He's wearing a Texas A&M football helmet right there. And then he decides, well, let's see how, I can, how far I can take this. Jimbo Fisher, the coach, gives this great rousing speech. And, and so he decides he's going to get a picture with him. So after that is over, he goes to Jimbo Fisher and he says, recruit, kicker, click. And he gets this picture with Jimbo Fisher. And then he walks out. He walks out like nothing had ever happened. And he had had this amazing, incredible experience that, let's face it, was all built on a lie of identity, right? Assuming an identity to pretend to be a part of a team that was going through something spectacular, right? But at the end of the day, he could never be part of that family. He could never really be part of that team. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't earn, he didn't work for what they had worked for and earned on that day in that place. And that's the difference. Because to be a follower of Jesus, you don't assume an identity. You receive an identity. You don't assume an identity and pretend that you worked for it and earned it. You receive an identity that is given to you on the basis of something that somebody worked for in your behalf. And that somebody is the Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again that you might have his identity and be in his family not just momentarily, not just for a moment, not just for an experience, but into eternity. That question is for you. What are you seeking? And Jesus answers it with two words. Follow me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would Help us to live in it, that we would receive you by faith and that we would live in that relationship that we have as little Christ followers of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us 
to that end and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.